Hello and welcome to this History West Midlands series of programmes about the Staffordshire Hoard. In this series we're looking at new information, stories and ideas that are emerging from the research into the Hoard. I'm Jenny Butterworth, I am the programme coordinator for the Staffordshire Hoard and I work for Birmingham Museums Trust and the Potteries Museum and Art Gallery in Stoke-on-Trent. Today we've got with us three people who are essential to understanding the Hoard. We've got Chris Fern, who's the lead archaeologist for the Staffordshire Hoard Research Project, which is funded by Historic England and the owners. We've got George Speak, who is an archaeologist and Anglo-Saxon art expert, and Cathy Shingler from the Potteries Museum and Art Gallery, where she's the interpretation officer and is at the front line of explaining the Hoard to the public. Today we're going to look at the incredible artwork that's present on the hoard objects and what it might tell us about the Anglo-Saxon world in which they were made and used and the people that might have owned them during the life of those objects before they were buried. So I'm going to turn to you firstly, Chris. We have this incredible collection of material which is very individually decorated. Is it telling us something about the people who owned and used them? Yes, many hundreds of objects and overwhelmingly the collection suggests masculine kit, fittings stripped from swords in particular and in one case a uh, sayax, a large fighting knife. We also have in some 1500 fragments the remains of at least one helmet. What we don't have is uh, we don't have any female items in the hoard and we don't have the other sorts of things that you might have expected in a cache of precious metal, which is what the hoard is. We don't have any coins. So yes, we're dealing effectively with a collection of material that represents war gear. And for this reason, it has been suggested that the hoard is battle loot, is the result of trophies taken from a defeated army or defeated armies. Now, the range of the material in the hoard suggests different workshop origins, very probably different regional origins. Its overall date range also suggests that it's probably the result of collection from different battles, potentially. So we're not necessarily looking at a collection of material that's all the result of one victory, but a collection of material that might have been collected over a long military career, as other people have suggested. So if that is so, what sort of numbers of men might be represented by the weapons in the hoard, even if they weren't one group of men who all fought together at one time? But do we get a sense of how many people are represented by these objects? The hoard looks like it might have come together over a period of decades. We have something in the region of 70 or so pommels, which are the fittings that come from the ends of swords uh, that would have capped the tang of the iron blade. And uh, it's important to uh, say that we don't have any of the actual weapons in the hoard, only the fittings from these sword handles or knife handles in some cases. We've also got fittings from the grips of swords, so we have what are called hilt collars, and we have about 100 of those that actually break down very neatly into a, about 40 pairs and 20 singletons. So if we start to look at the quantities of different fittings, we start to build up a picture of 
in terms of swords at least, perhaps uh, a number of weapons in the low hundreds. We might suggest something in the region of 150 swords to perhaps 200 swords being represented by the fittings. In terms of the numbers of warriors that might have made up armies in this period, I mean, we're still talking about perhaps relatively small armies, numbering in the high hundreds or, or low thousands. And of course, not all of those individuals would have carried weaponry of the pedigree that we're seeing through the metalwork of the Horde. What you're saying is that what we might have here is represented a certain number of high-status men who would each have control in any battle, say, over a larger number of warriors who were not so similarly equipped. Yes, it's very difficult to speculate about numbers in battles at this period because we really don't have very much to go on in terms of historical source data. And it's important to emphasise as well that there is clearly material that has been part of the collection at some point but but did not go into the ground. Material has been removed from the hoard over time as well as been collected and accreted into it. Okay, so perhaps I'll ask you about that, Cathy. If we had an Anglo-Saxon warrior standing in front of us and he was a high-status warrior that was fully kitted out, as Chris is saying, some of what he was wearing has become part of the hoard but there are parts that are missing. Can you give us a sense of that warrior? If he's a very well-equipped warrior, he might be wearing a mail shirt... And on some of the little stamp panels from the Horde helmets and the Sutton Hoo helmets, you can see their little mail shirts and the, the artist has tried to represent chain mail. He might have had a helmet, but there's so few helmets have been discovered. Yes, I think five is the latest count of the total number of Anglo-Saxon helmets. So he might have had something like a leather cap or perhaps bits of horn stuck together with something that hasn't survived. If he's incredibly rich and wealthy, he might have a sword. Any free-born Anglo-Saxon male is allowed to carry a spear, and that's what your rank and file are generally fighting with. They'll probably have had a seax, and pretty much everybody has a seax, even women and children have them. And this is a single-bladed knife? Sort of almost like a machete, really, I suppose, but they vary in size from quite tiny to head-chopping-off size, but I think probably mostly for women and children are using, being used for peeling turnips rather than chopping heads off. That is going to be a lot more useful to you than a spear when you're in close combat. They tended to have a shield because the great Anglo-Saxon secret battle weapon was the shield wall, in which you'd all line up together with your shields overlapping and sort of bristling with spears. And there'd be a sort of a bit of a face-off and the daring youth of the tribe would dash across and some of them, if they were very, very brave, they'd jump up on the bosses of the opposing shields and stab down with their spear and try and make it back to their own side before they were cut down themselves. And you'd also have perhaps three or four javelin-type spears, little short ones that you could throw at the enemy before the shield walls split up and broke. OK, so we're missing all those sort of other sorts of weapons possibly other sorts of armour. Also, there are a few little buckles in the hoard, but are there as many as we'd expect? Not necessarily. Grand buckles like the sort that we see in the Sutton Hoo burial in Suffolk or that we see down in East Kent. You get these very elaborate triangular buckles, which look very impressive, but in terms of actually wearing one, they would have been quite cumbersome objects and you might not have wanted to wear it into battle. But we might have expected a few more evidence of sword harness than we have. So I might turn to you, George, and ask you, you're specifically looking at the material, the foils that come from the helmet, which, as Chris has said, are very fragmented, but they give us special information about Saxon warriors. Yeah, very much so. The helmet panels are interesting, being dye-impressed, and we sort out a variety of schemes. There are, for example, warriors marching to the left with their shields held at their waist, 
And then there are warriors marching to the right, which have shields lifted up. And that is interesting because whether one relates this to the description that Tacitus gives of kind of early Germanic tribes lifting their shields so that they could intimidate their enemies, so the shield became a kind of soundboard, so they raised their voices. It may well be that we have here two depictions of you know, warriors going into battle and warriors intimidating the enemy. But in relationship to you know, what, what's already been said about the kind of helmet, it's interesting to note that all the warriors who have shields and spears also have helmets. So the notion that the helmet is just kind of regalia, which it may well be the helmet we have at, uh, at Staffordshire Hall. It's so splendid. In fact, it is, I think, in terms of the quality of metals, more splendid in one sense than the Sun Hu helmet, which we know was, I think, by most authorities, the regalia of an East Anglian king. That was Scandinavian. So we also have kind of the Swedish affinities in ornament with the panels of, of ornament for the Staffordshire helmet panels. And intriguingly, there's a lot of iconographic detail which ongoing research is trying to decipher. And it is an enormous jigsaw puzzle because uh, there are over 1,500 fragments of foils and uh, some of these have been partially put together, but about 10 different distinct friezes have certainly been identified. But the very distinct ones are the warrior panels. And then we have an equestrian warrior. Unfortunately, the rider is missing. So whether he, the most important, may have had another helmet. And uh, if one looks at the Sutton Hoo helmet, he may well have been placed right on the front of the helmet. At this stage, there's a lot of speculation, but uh, a lot of ongoing work, which is revealing a lot of information. Work on the foils definitely is still ongoing, but are we sure there's only one helmet in there? There can't be several, or is that still... No, we're not sure at this point in time. Um, the fittings that we have that are not foils for the helmet, we have a cast silver gilt crest from the helmet, and we have two cheek pieces, which both combine to just a single helmet. We don't have cast fittings from what we might interpret as another helmet. So at the moment, we have what looks like one helmet, but it's not impossible that we have more than one. The other point I'd like to make is returning to what George has said about these uh, lines of marching warriors that we have on the helmet foils. The fact that they're each shown with a helmet themselves, topped with a, a bird-crested mount. There's this discrepancy between the representation of helmets on the actual helmet itself and the number of helmets we have from Anglo-Saxon England. And to an extent, this is also replicated in the great heroic poem of Anglo-Saxon England, Beowulf. Mm. And I think what we're seeing in both cases is an idealised representation of the warrior in Anglo-Saxon England. It's quite possible that these lines of warriors that we have on the helmet are actually perhaps supposed to be lines of ancestors lining up to support the wearer of the helmet in battle in a spiritual sense. You've mentioned Beowulf, so I perhaps I'll turn to Cathy and ask her to tell us just a little bit about what Beowulf is. It's a great... It is, is it the greatest Anglo-Saxon poem? Well, it's the only full-length epic poem, really. There are fragments of other bits and pieces of poetry, but Beowulf is the biggest, if you like, and it wasn't written down until the year 1000. But it seems reasonable to suppose that it had been circulating orally for some time before that, and the people who occur in it are mentioned in other works and can be not exactly dated, but certainly were around before the Staffordshire Horde. The action takes place in Sweden and Denmark, 
but that's where a lot of the East Anglians in particular are coming from, their ancestors are coming from. So it's this great epic story of daring deeds and monster slaying and nobility and hall etiquette, if you like. But it's also a sort of nostalgia fest, I think, for the Anglo-Saxons who are over here. And they're reminiscing, if you like, a few generations back and and romanticising what they thought their ancestors were up to and taking the myths that from their homeland and perhaps setting them in an Anglo-Saxon context. Chris, I know you've said in the past that the Staffordshire Horde is a sort of mirror of Beowulf in artefactual terms, and what Cathy's saying sounds very much what you've been saying about having your ancestors on your helmet. Well, yes, the important thing to say about Beowulf is that although it is written down later, the objects it describes, its material culture, is a material culture of the 5th to 7th century, perhaps with the emphasis on the 7th century, the period of the Horde. And what we find in Beowulf is this idealised telling of this great hero Beowulf and his slaying of multiple monsters in a series of episodes throughout the epic. And in each case, after he is successful, we see him being rewarded with magnificent treasures, with golden objects, gilded objects, that were given to him in grateful thanks by the rulers of the kingdoms which he liberates from these monsters, by Hrothgar, notably. They're not given just for their material value. They're not simply a material reward for Beowulf. They're also objects of prestige. These objects that are, are given to the warrior are objects of status that show, on the one hand, his status in achieving his victories over the monsters Grendel and Grendel's mother, but they also are a bond of obligation. They're an object that requires a warrior to live up to the status that the object in itself bequeaths. The reason I've said that the Horde is in some respects a mirror of Beowulf is just because in Beowulf the theme of gold and treasure is very prominent. And it was always considered that it was to an extent an idealised view of treasure, a bit of poetic spin. But suddenly what we've been confronted with in the Horde is a great treasure almost to match the great treasure in the barrow that the dragon guards, the last of the monsters that Beowulf confronts. I was going to ask you, George, just from a, an artwork point of view then, are we seeing in Beowulf probably richly decorated treasures and weapons that are like the decorated Well, object? we know that you know, one of the gifts Beowulf received was a richly decorated saddle and harness fittings, and one of the speculations we are working on the moment is whether, in fact, some of these exotic cloisonne mounts may well have come from a saddle. I know Chris has suggested that the predatory birds and the fish may well have come from the forefront of a saddle, which I think is a very good suggestion. But I think, you know, what the hall really does say is that, you know, it is the art of an elite group. And, you know, when we're looking at Beowulf, Beowulf is working for a king. He's giving gifts by a king, and the giving of gifts is something, I think, that is reflected in the Horde. There's a richness there which has got to be somehow associated with royalty. It's high-status art. It's made for an elite group of warriors, but it's highly individual, isn't it? I mean, what you've said there are, say, about 70 pommels or whatever. If I was an Anglo-Saxon warrior, I'd recognise the artwork on my own sword quite specifically. Yes, and one of the key features is this animal art. And it's important to say that the Anglo-Saxons, like many of the other Germanic groups that were the successor people,
peoples of, of the Western Roman Empire, in the first instance inherited and then developed a concept of animal art from the later Roman Empire. And that continues into this period. And uh, the specific art that we're dealing with is an art called Sarlin's Style II. Now, archaeologists love Sarlin, but why do we talk about him at all? He was a Swedish archaeologist who wrote this classic book, The Alphagermanische Tier Ornamentique, and he classified basically Germanic animal art, in styles one, style two, and style three. And this is a European-wide look at uh, ornament. Style one basically is a kind of recognition that these faceted, chip-carved ornaments, which you get in Scandinavia and in Anglo-Saxon England, derived actually from kind of late Roman working traditions. Style two is distinct and comes in chronologically later, and it's stylistically distinct because it shows these interlacing of animals, a whole variety of menagerie of animals from predatory beasts, quadrupeds, sometimes with limbs, without limbs, serpents, and many of these are going to be executed in cloisonne and filigree. What we have in the hoard is mainly style two, is that right? Correct, yes. We have a pair of hilt collars in silver which actually have the previous style, style one, and they are some of the earliest objects in the hoard, if not the earliest, and they date to the mid-6th century, so around 550. But yes, you're absolutely right. The majority of the material, some 130 objects, have style two. Style two is, like style one, a very abstract art, it requires a certain amount of specific knowledge to interpret it in many cases. And one of the lovely things I've been looking at recently is actual little quote from Beowulf that may actually even reference sword fittings decorated with style to in gold filigree. And filigree is decorative gold wire work that we see on many of the hoard objects, and in fact, in which is the predominant metalworking technique in the hoard. So the Warriors are choosing to have their weapons decorated with this abstract art that uses a lot of different animals. I just wanted, Cathy, so animals obviously play a crucial role in Saxon sort of belief and culture. I just wanted to tell us a bit about what some of those animals were. Well, we know virtually nothing about what the pagan Anglo-Saxons believed. But just looking at the hoard, you've got wild boars on it, and we know that wild boars probably symbolised protection. They're, they're a sort of almost like an amulet on your sword to protect you. There's birds of prey, and it seems to me quite likely that they're picking up on the Roman iconography in which eagles are symbols of sovereignty. And so if you're a particularly powerful king, you're going to want eagles on your stuff. Sometimes you get ravens, which are sort of choosers of the slain, so they're very much associated with battle. They don't do anything by accident, do they? Every little thing is significant. Snakes are a sort of... They might be a conduit or a link to the underworld. And even the filigree designs that look pretty much abstract, if you sort of trace them around with your finger, if you sort of follow them around, they quite often end in a little tiny head. I mean, it takes somebody like Chris or George to identify some of the more complicated bits of animals, but even I can see that they're snakes and, and, and they will have meant something quite strong to the person who carried them. Yeah, I'm getting that sense from you all that the art on the objects is really telling us that these objects had quite complicated meanings. I think there's a visual analogy with the Anglo-Saxon riddle. There was a concealed meaning, and you actually always had to have a kind of a practised eye to kind of decipher that. And quite often there was an image that looks like something one way up, and it looks like a face or something the other mm. way up. So that is like the ambiguity that they like in their 
games and their riddles yeah. and their literature. So if I, in my imagination, was standing in a 7th century Saxon great hall with a set of warriors and their swords, would they all be discussing their swords, admiring each other's swords, <laughs> looking at each other's riddles, wishing that they had a bore on their sword? Yes, I think these objects were intended to be appreciated on a number of levels. From a distance, you'd have been able to tell that the sword with a gold handle was just that. But the detail of the ornament, in particularly the uh, riddling style too, that requires the viewer to get very close to it to interpret it, clearly means that these objects were also intended to be appreciated very close up. The objects are multifaceted. Their surfaces are designed to reflect light and quite possibly firelight in the hall, the mead hall, which would obviously have relied on torchlight and the great fire at the centre of the hall to have illuminated it after dark. And so these objects really would have taken on a new life in certain settings. They were meant to be read close up by people who had the knowledge. And it's quite possible that quite a bit of this knowledge was sacred knowledge, but it was only meant to be understood by an elite. By keeping a knowledge sacred, you help to cement your position of authority over others. That seems like a good point to then look at the relationship between paganism and Christianity, which is quite crucial in the Horde, because is what you're saying about decoding weaponry and so on, is that a pagan thing? Is it inconsistent with new Christian beliefs? There's a mixture, isn't there, of material in the Horde? Yes, it's important to say that the Horde, as a collection of metalwork that mainly dates in its manufacturing use to the first half of the 7th century, occupies a, a very important time historically of great change. It's a period of kingdom formation in Anglo-Saxon England and it's also the period of conversion. Christianity historically at least arrives in the south of England in Kent in 597 and over a period of half a century it spreads throughout Anglo-Saxon England and so the Horde really is a fossil in a way of both the political formations of the kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England largely through warfare and also uh, a fossil of the intellectual shifts that are taking place in the period. On many of the objects, we see a combination of animal art, which, remember, has its origins in the pre-Christian period and very likely encapsulates pagan belief and pagan narratives. We see that combined with Christian motifs on a number of objects, with overtly Christian crosses in particular. And, of course, the, the great folded crosses perhaps the greatest manifestation of this in the Horde. The cross is, of course, overtly Christian on the one hand, but its arms are filled with this legacy of pagan animal art. There's a lot of hedging of bets going on, I think, in the period. I mean, both in life, but in warfare, you decorate your helmet and your swords with the motifs both of the old gods but also the new Christian god. But we also see it in death, and most famously in the case of Sutton Hoo. The great royal burial at Sutton Hoo contains a pair of baptismal spoons as well as other objects that are, are Christian or have Christian symbols on them. Um, but it's also a, a burial very much in the pre-Christian tradition and it's also riddled with other objects that are covered in pagan iconography. Also, if you've been used to believing in a polytheistic system, it's quite a big switch to move into a monotheistic system, I think. And uh, I think it is Radolf, isn't it, who's converted and baptised in the whole caboodle. And a couple of, <laughs> yes, exactly. A couple of years later, Augustine sort of says, you know, how are you getting on with Christianity? He says, oh, great, you know, the Christian God's been really good to us. And Augustine's like, did you set up an altar like I told you? And 
Bradwell said, yes, and here with all the others. You know, it's like the Romans, they were able to accept the Christian God as well. It's just the exclusivity that it took them a bit longer to get the hang of. So it's not like your, your king is Christian, all of a sudden a switch goes and the whole kingdom is automatically Christian. There's going to be a, a while before it's fully accepted. Yes, and there's one lovely pommel in the collection that beautifully shows this. I think it's K384, if I remember correctly. On one side, it has a wonderful animal art design of two creatures confronting each other, possibly horses. <laughs> but on the other side, it has Christian crosses. So the two different faces of belief in the mid-7th century. We've talked about these things that are works of art. They're often heirloom pieces. I know... A lot of the pommels are worn, which suggests men are standing around with their hand on the top of the pommel. And, you know, we've said that some of the art is designed to be looked at close up. But these are also functional weapons, aren't they? The purpose of this art is not simply to be looked at. It has a hard-edged function in the end. Where we have found similar fittings still attached to swords in burials... Yes, they are attached to pattern-welded sword blades that are fully functional which we would assume were used, not necessarily all the time. And that's one of the interesting things about the wear patterns we find on the fittings from the hoard. Most of the wear on the sword fittings from the sword hilts, the grips, are focused on the tops of the pommels, where the pommel was rubbing against clothing over a long period of time or, or from a warrior having his hand resting on the top of his sword. But they're not where you might expect the wear to occur on fittings on the grip, showing that these weapons weren't necessarily drawn in anger very frequently. So again, we're returning to the idea of these objects being prestige objects, status symbols on the one hand, but yes, uh, fully functional when the need arose. Going back to the sword attached to the warrior, the sword is at the side, and my view is that actually that pommel was chafing against the textile rather than the warrior keeping his hand on the top. I think you'd need a very, very abrasive palm to produce the wear on some of those pommels. But marching, walking on a horse there'd be a lot of constant abrasion with a pommel against your clothing. Perhaps the biggest question about the hoard, and one that's very difficult to answer, is why this collection of material was then buried. And what I wondered is, does the artwork and the iconography on it give us any clues as to why it might have been buried in that field? The objects themselves show damage that, on the one hand, suggests systematic but crude removal from the swords and other objects from which the precious mounts were stripped, but on the other hand, there is also some damage which appears more malicious, more deliberate. And that includes to some of the uh, Christian objects. The famous strip with its biblical inscription has been folded in half. The great gold cross has been folded into a little package and its decorative gemmed bosses were removed. And then we have uh, the wonderful mount of a fish between two birds. And the head of the fish has been snapped off deliberately. Now, one interesting thing about that is, of course, the fish as a Christian symbol. Whether or not the fish has a Christian meaning in this particular case or not, we don't know. But it's certainly the case that the head of that fish was targeted and snapped off. So are we dealing with a case where some objects were broken deliberately, perhaps to break the magical religious power of the object itself? That goes back to the question of whether or not we're dealing with a ritual act or whether we're dealing with an act to conceal a treasure a cache of metalwork that was intended for recovery, but never was? Are we dealing with a royal treasury hidden at a time of crisis that was never recovered for some reason? Or are we dealing with a ritual deposit, a deposit of war booty 
in thanks to war gods for uh, victories fought and won. The world of academics divides, and the world of the public divides into these two camps, so whether or not we're dealing with a ritual deposit or a bullion deposit. In my mind, it could be the result of a single battle, but in, within that battle, one recognises within the horde different kinds of sword fittings, the filigree, the clasoni, one looking at you know, Southumbrian, Northumbrian, Anglian troops, you know, what was the kind of mixture of who were the owners of these swords. There's a lot of speculation which perhaps we'll never be able to resolve, but um, I think we can ask some very pertinent questions about the horde still. So just one last question to Cathy then. Could this be the dragon's treasure from Beowulf that was buried in the barrow? Well, it was buried in the barrow, gone back to earth as useless to men as it ever was, and that was in Scandinavia. But I would like to think that at some point the treasure had passed through the hands of King Pender, who was personally responsible for the deaths of five kings, including Northumbrians and East Angles, and he would have, or his people would have been looting after the battle, and he will have had quite a collection of interesting bits of swords from various parts of the country and different workshops. But I also would like to know whereabout it would fit in with the death of King Pender. He marches upon King Oswy with 30 sub-kings underneath him, all of whom will have had their own amazing swords and amazing bits and pieces, and then they were for their own things. It must have been quite a big army. And at the Battle of Winwood, they take this huge ransom off King Oswy Pender divides it up between his Welsh allies and then they're all swept away by a great flood and killed by an ambush by Oswy's men who, I suppose, come to get the treasure back. But Oswy's hoard must have been massive if he's got his treasure back and he's taken all this stuff off Pender's men and his people. What happened to that? (laughs) Well, that seems like a very good point to end. There clearly will be questions for quite some time, but I feel as if we've got much closer to the men who might have owned the Staffordshire hoard originally and that's been very interesting. So thank you very much. In the next episode, we'll consider the craftsmanship that was needed to make these extraordinary objects and examine the modern techniques that are being used to unlock their secrets. (laughs) 